This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Anthony Cao. My guest today is Jinying Li. Jinying is an assistant professor of modern culture and media at Brown University. Her research and teaching focuses on media theory, animation, and digital culture in East Asia. She's also a filmmaker who's worked on animations, features, and documentaries, including the 2016 animation feature Big Fish and Begonia. Jinying has just come out with her first book, Anime's Knowledge Cultures, Geek Otaku Zai, published March 2024 by the University of Minnesota Press. The book explores how the rise of anime intersects with concepts of geekdom around the world. In fact, it goes beyond Western geeks and Japanese otaku and offers an especially deep look at Zai culture in China. Thank you, Jinying Li, for coming on the show. Uh, thank you, Anthony, for inviting me to the show. It's my pleasure discussing my book with you and your audience. Well, before we get to your book, um, I, I see that you have a rather interesting academic background. Uh, you studied biotechnology yes. and molecular biology before going into the cinema studies field. Um, what drove you to make that transition and become a scholar of media and cinema studies? Uh, short answer, passion, I guess. Uh, long answer, uh, I've been always interested in film and animation ever since my childhood. So I used to secretly dream to be a filmmaker, even though I told everyone I want to be a scientist because that's what I expected from you as a good student. Uh, but I think a major experience that uh, influenced my decision was my participation in the so-called DV movement in China, in Beijing, in the early 2000s, when, when I was in college in Beijing, I participated in some short film production projects and made several short films. And they were called the DV film at that time in China, using digital video camera that became affordable and popularized among amateur filmmakers and the professionals alike at that moment, leading to a very important um, independent and then underground filmmaking movement. That experience very influential and helped me make the decision later. And also when I first came to United States, I was um, enrolled in the PhD program in molecular biology at UT Austin. 
And when I was in Austin study biology, I sometimes went to the um, anime screening organized by the students uh, anime club at UT, which is very fun. And that also make me realize how popular anime is among American students. Uh, I was a big anime fan, but it's really exciting to find uh, um, people share my similar interests on college campuses, particularly among a lot of students who study science and engineering and technology including some of my lab mates in biology, actually. So that kind of experience, uh, realizing how anime is so popular among students studying science and technology, also very influential and inspiring for my later work, uh, my dissertation, which became this book, of course, about anime as a geek culture. Well, we'll get to some of those connections with uh, science and technology later, but uh, I'm wondering how you might summarize the overall idea of uh, your book, Anime's Knowledge Cultures. And also, I'm curious, you know, why you feel the book and its topics are especially relevant and important for readers to think about today. Um, I think the simplest way to summarize the book is that it is about understanding geeks and the geek culture through anime. So the book simply asks, why does anime, which is seemingly a very low-tech medium, become somewhat a culture of new cool in the millennium that appeal to tech-savvy geeks? Of course, the term geeks refers to not simply American computer boys in Silicon Valley, but rather refers to a much broader type of global knowledge culture that identify as otaku in Japan and the Jai in China. So the importance of this book is because of uh, these geeks, otaku and Jai are the most significant social cultural groups of our time because they're the knowledge workers and consumers who program our machine manage our network system, leading the cultural trend of popular media, and also boost our economies. So therefore, they are the core labor and consumer force that form the backbone of current post-industrial economy and the society. Therefore, I believe understanding these geeks of Taku and Jai, as well as their cultural values, is a key to understanding our current information society at large. Um, in other words, I think the topics of the book are important because geeks are important. They play a very crucial role in our current post-industrial society of information capitalism. Um, the book is understanding these geeks, Otaku and Jai, globally through the transnational and the uh, transmedia network that we know as anime. Yeah, I really appreciated how the book has this global focus. Uh, you know, you have a lot of Western discourse uh, that, mm -hmm. that kind of focuses on, on, on the Japanese-ness of anime and, and doesn't necessarily look at, you know, the role in other contexts, um, yes. you know, like the Chinese-speaking world. And you know, with, with each of your book's chapters, you are introducing some pretty interesting phenomena or concepts um, that anime has helped either inspire or shape, whether in China or, or beyond in a global context. And you know, I'd love to walk through uh, these concepts with you and, and give our listeners a brief taste of each one. And uh, the first you know, concept here is the the subculture of of zai, which I think most Chinese speakers will probably know, but uh, for Anglophone listeners, um, may not be as familiar as a term like otaku or or geek. So, uh, what is zai, and and how did that notion arise uh, amidst the importation of of anime to mainland China, and you know what is it, the importance of of zai in relation to anime? Uh, jai is the Chinese word for otaku. 
but it also can translate as geeks. It is a long word borrowed from the kanji character, which is the Chinese character in Japanese writing, from the Japanese word otaku, because otaku written in Chinese character are pronounced in Chinese as yujai. So the jai letter is simply borrowed from the kanji, the Chinese character in Japanese uh, writing. is The original meaning of otaku yujai, it means your house. So jai is taken from the Chinese character of a Japanese term. And uh, given this transnational, also translingual origin, because Jai is from Ataku, right? So Jai evidently is not very unique to China. It's a part of a global system, a global popular culture, um, a knowledge culture, including the geek culture in the US and Ataku in Japan. So it's a part of a very global popular culture reference. Uh, but of course, this, even though it's a global knowledge culture, it has its own local variants and local specificity in China. And this local specificity is what I want to address by the notion of Jai. So it's a part of a global culture, but has its own local taste and local specificity and experiences in this particular context of China. And uh, as I discussed in the book, the importance of Jai is a historical development because it has developed since 1980s through the popularization of anime as imported culture to China during China's own very profound social economic transformation in the past four decades, moving from post-socialist era in the 1980s during the reform and open door policy to today's transitioning toward the knowledge economy. So specifically, it began with the, as a chapter outline, it began with the uh, broadcasting of Astro Boy in the 19 in television in 1980s, which is a very popular anime, and every child, including myself, was a big fan of in the 1980s. And then it developed through computer gaming magazine in the 1990s, and then eventually popularized through the internet fandom in the new millennium. And today, Thai culture is no longer limited to the anime subculture, has become a rather very general term to describe Chinese digital culture broadly. So in today, China talk about Jai, people referring to something much broadly, including uh, digital gaming, internet commerce, and so on and so forth. So that is why Jai and the Jai economy became a rather popular keyword in China in, 19, uh, in 2020 during the COVID pandemic. Everybody talk about Jai economy may save us from the uh, pandemic because people believe the online digital culture may save Chinese economy from the impact of pandemic quarantine. So Jai is started from anime subculture, but then eventually become mainstream culture that broadly referring to any digital um, cultural practice broadly. And because of Jai originally developed from anime fandom and expanded to a much broader and even mainstream digital knowledge culture with very wide ranging impact particularly in China's transition toward so-called post-industrialism. So we know now China is in this difficult transitioning from this cheap labor-based manufacturing economy to an information-based knowledge economy and moving from made in China to so-called creative in China. And the argument in my book is Jai culture play a very important part in this transition in China. And there's a history of Chinese Jai culture, therefore, provide us with a perfect case study to demonstrate how anime played a very crucial role in the emergence and development of a post-industrial knowledge culture in a socially and a historically specific context in China. Hmm. And, you know, you're mentioning fan communities and fandoms mm -hmm. uh, as you were talking about Zai and, um, 
one other thing that you talk about in a book is this phenomenon of fan subs, uh, subtitles that are created by fan communities around uh, anime and, and more broadly imported media content. What is so interesting about these communities, uh, especially within the context of China? Uh, fan sub refers to um, subtitled and translated video by fans among fans for themselves. Um, it is a fan culture that represents a form of voluntary labor that provided by fans among themselves for free within the community. So it's a free labor serving the community. And this free labor is driven largely by the desire and the demand for communication within the fandom community. For example, to share knowledge, to share the understanding of their culture passion. Therefore, in this book, I call fans of uh, the sort of the way in which fans have organized itself in the book is called a communication labor, which is a form of immaterial labor because it's knowledge labor. It's an immaterial labor that has become a fastest growing production force in today's digital economy. For example, a lot of labor today is driven by communication, like Twittering, Facebooking. So they could all be considered as communication labor. And the FanSub is a very interesting example of this communication labor because it's serving a particular knowledge community. And this communication labor enables FanSub to become a very powerful medium to create a global knowledge community among anime fans throughout the world through their collective production and circulation of knowledge and information. So it's a knowledge community specifically organized by the free communication labor. And so therefore, through FanSub, we can understand how anime Gideon as a knowledge culture create a new mode of organizing labor and the production through communicative networks among fandoms and which create a new kind of community and new kind of uh, knowledge environment. And uh, that actually is the significance of the FanSub. And I think um, those function of this communication labor to generate a knowledge sphere of community is what makes FanSub so meaningful and significant in knowledge culture as a way of organizing labor and production. And I think this meaning and the significance is not specifically unique to China, though, because um, it is a cultural practice that is widely popular. You might find a fan sub in many different languages, in Chinese, Spanish, Japanese, sometimes even, or Korea, or Hindi, or English, of course. Um, for example, um, in my anime class I teach at Brown, a lot of my students, most of American, actually are watching anime mostly in fan sub too. So it's not just unique to China. And so therefore, uh, I see it as a very transnational and global practice. And that's why in this chapter, I analyze anime, a Chinese fan sub, anime fan sub in Chinese together with those English version side by side sometimes because they share a lot of similar features. So I think this is phenomenon not very unique to Chinese particular but rather to a global uh, system of knowledge, culture, organizing its own community. Yeah, well, on the note of something that maybe is a little bit more unique, at least in China and Japan yeah. compared to the West, you uh, introduce uh, and, and examine Danmaku or uh, bullet mm. subtitles, which if yes. you go to 
you know, a Chinese video site like Bilibili, it's like, it's very, it's just there. It's a, it's a feature of the site. But if you go on someplace like YouTube, it's completely absent. You know, most yes. people in the Anglosphere may have never uh, just conceptualized of these things. So what is Danmaku and uh, what does its popularity signify when it comes to, you know, anime, geek culture uh, more broadly? Danmaku uh, is a Japanese term. It's also called Danmu in Chinese. They're written the same way in kanji. And the Danmaku, the literal translation is bully curtain. It is a unique interface design to render the user comments flying over videos on screen. So your screen, the video seems to be covered by a curtain full of bullets. That's why it's called bullet curtain demo. Um, it was originally developed by the Japanese video sharing platform Nico Nico, and it was introduced to China through um, anime fan platforms such as Bilibili, as you mentioned. And then it was widely adopted by many different media, including cinema, television, video streaming, social media in China. So therefore, I think today Demaku become a very mainstream and prevalent media interface. It is even safe to say that Damaku has become a default interface for Chinese digital video culture broadly. So today, not only Bilibili, you go to most any, almost any Chinese video sharing platform or site, you will see Damaku. It is everywhere. Um, and I think, yeah, Damaku is almost entirely absent in YouTube or any many Western video culture context. However, I probably would caution against saying it's a complete absence from vast viewing sharing service entirely, because if you notice, TikTok has something similar to Demaku, right? It also has comments, even though it's not as invasive as Demaku on Bilibili, but it has similar comments over the video, right? So through TikTok, which is also developed by Chinese company, course, uh, the comments over video interface may also be partially introduced to some Western video sharing culture, particularly for young, uh, young users, though probably with a much lesser degree than Demaku in East Asia. And uh, I think the most interesting thing about Demaku, as my book argues, is that it, there's a sense of strong conflicts, tension, or you may say incoherence or indecision that is happening on this interface between comments and video. That is, the viewers constantly struggle whether to read the comments or to watch the video. So anybody has watched the demo video knows you're constantly facing this polarizing desires between reading the comments versus watching the video. And these two modes are simply not compatible with each other. And they're constantly in struggle, in conflict between each other. And that is why in this chapter, I describe a Damaku interface as a, a contact zone. Because as a contact zone, it characterizes this conflicting and struggling and incoherent relationship between the comment function versus the video function, between information platform, versus a video content between what we may call a cybernetic pleasure of information searching versus a traditional visual pleasure of watching an anime video. And this incoherence is very important because this contact zone of incoherence and the indecision 
you know, between the comments and the video, between the platform and the content, is very effective. It literally makes you feel anxious. Sometimes has a feeling of anxiety and agitation. For example, my mother hated Damaku. Every time she felt this, totally destroyed her viewing experience of anything on uh, Bilibili. By the way, my mom is really love Billy Billy, but she hates Damaku. Um, and this affective experience, of course, that Damaku, she's not Otaku, right? But she loves online videos, so she watched a lot of things on Billy Billy, but she really hates Damaku. So this affective experience, I believe, demonstrated one of the key issues, or maybe a central crisis in the knowledge culture of anime Gidan. Because anime, Gidan or geek culture broadly is also marked by the same tension between information navigation versus a meaningful absorption, between multiplicity versus singularity. To put it simply, as anime geeks, I mean, as anybody who's anime geek may share the same experience, or as knowledge worker broadly, we are facing similar problem. We facing similar struggle because we want to produce and consume as much information as possible but at the same time we are desiring for some sort of meaningful certainty absorption so there's a constant struggle as a geeks between you want to be having more information versus having some certainty of meaning the struggle is demonstrated by this context of this indecision on Danaku. um and the important but the problem is the more information we have, the further away we are moving from certainty or the meaningful perception. So there is a, really a conflict and a tension here. And I think this tension between information overload versus meaningful certainty is what we feel at the Damaku interface. That's why Damaku is a very interesting example as an effect of contact zone a zone of indecision, indecision between comments versus video, between having more information or concentrating on this particular video. I think the problem with Damaku, you just cannot concentrate. You have to struggle in between more information versus this particular, focusing this particular video. And I think this effective tension, this struggling between two different things is what I call a cybernetic artifact in the book because it characterized one of the key feature and the problem in knowledge culture of anime Eden or big culture broadly. That is, we just have to struggle between more information or the singular focus of something meaningful. Yeah, I mean, Danmaku are certainly very, uh, <laughs> they can be very distracting, but also yeah. very amusing uh, yes. in their own ways. Um, well, I want to move us from, you know, the things perhaps floating above the videos to things within the videos itself and, and dive into you know, your discussions around these specific tropes and, and techniques that are evident in uh, anime. Um, and you dive into this concept of the mecha child. Um, help us understand what a mecha child is and what um, it might help us uh, understand mm -hmm. about post-industrial knowledge work and, you know, late capitalism. Um, Becca Child is a concept I invented in the book to characterize a popular motif in anime, which unfolds through this intimate assimilation and identification between machines and the child figure. For example, Astro Boy, right, who is a child but also a rabbit, or Akila in the film Akila, who is a child but also kind of a super uh, machine. 
And for example, also other examples, including um, the Mecca Palace in Gundam series or New Genesis Evergreen, the children have to be constantly being wrapped up within this machine of Mecca. So uh, all those examples demonstrating certain integration and assimilation between a children figure and the machines. And if you watch a lot of anime, you may notice there are actually a lot of uh, mecha children, and the mecha child motif is very prevalent. Um, almost majority of anime in the science fiction category um, feature a certain kind of uh, child figure who are closely associated with machines or technology. So the mecha child motif is very, very popular in anime, particularly sci-fi anime. And this motif of mecha child, I believe, can help us understand knowledge work and the culture of geeks in two ways. Firstly, this mecha child, who is often imagined in anime as this very mystical figure, you know, Astro Boy is a very mystical figure, with a perpetual use and creativity. For example, Astro Boy never aged, right? So, and in Evangelion, all those children really never age. Even in the new latest Evangelion film, I don't know whether I've watched it, the child remains a teenager, right? This one thing about Becca Child, they never grow up. They have a perpetual use of creativity. And this model of a Mecca child who has a perpetual use of creativity serve as an, an ideal vehicle of identification for geeks, otaku, and jai, who often widely perceived in popular cultural imagination, or maybe sometimes even self-identified as childish but creative figures. So for example, we often think about geeks as childish, that is Silicon Valley, the children's industry, and we often consider geeks, otaku as fanboys or computer boys who are equipped with very valuable skills. And that their skills are also valuable for a particular kind of techno economy that is also imagined with this mystical temporality of eternal recurrence and renewal. For example, we often believe digital economy can keep renewing itself in cycle of updated gadgets such as iPhone 1, 2, 3, whatever. So there is a popular imagination, digital economy can run you forever, keep renewing itself. So similarly as a as a mega children who keep being creative without aging. In other words, um, this micro children crystallize our imagination that the geeks of knowledge culture in general, geeks of knowledge workers in general, can see themselves as micro children. And because the knowledge work and culture of this geek are often endowed with a similar logic of creativity and perpetual use, as well as the logic of human machine integration. So they are no longer, so the reason they can be forever young and forever creative because they function as integration between human and the machine as a mecha child. Just like the mecha children in those imaginary settings in anime, those children who live with as well as machines such as Astro Boy, for geeks who work and live as knowledge labor consumer, the logic of human-machine integration is equally normalized or sometimes as uh, ubiquitous or indispensable. And even sometimes this kind of human-machine integration could imagine as fetishized, as therapeutic or empowering. So I think um, the way in which mecha-children imagination function is to provide geek with self-identification. And through the self-identification, they see themselves as mecha-children. So therefore, when they see this human-machine integration in the mecha-children imagination in anime, they see themselves having similar experience 
that they, they themselves also live together with the machine. And this kind of human-machine integration for geeks and otaku often sometimes normalized as something very routine or ubiquitous, or even sometimes fetishized because it's something considered very empowering, desirable, and therapeutic. And secondly, I think the importance of this microchild is because um, this logic of human-machine integration perpetuated by these uh, microchildren figures uh, also create a strong sense of techno-intimacy. It means, um, techno-intimacy means it internalized the material and the symbolic structure of information technology into the daily life and habit of knowledge workers as both familiar and fantastic, both intimate and cool. Um, in other words, in the through this Michael Child motif, this anime create an imaginary milieu for knowledge geeks to have uh, intimate feelings with technology, as if those technology are part of their life and the being. And the more importantly, this sense of techno-intimacy has also increasingly become a dominant cultural logic that is adopted by a wide range of techno-cultural forms beyond anime. For example, the cute robot icon in Google Android. I don't know whether I use Google Android, but it's a very cute robot icon, right? And this cute robot icon, just like a micro child, created a static system that translates technological portability and the immediacy into a structured feeling of intimacy. For instance, this cute rubber icon for Google Android makes us feel intimately associated with operating system of Android, as if it is part of our companion, part of our life, right? So we feel we intimately connected with this little robot that called Google Android. And, uh, and in this, and this kind of uh, uh, feel of techno intimacy is very similar with how Michael Child operate anime. For example, if you look at the design of uh, Google Android, it's very similar to uh, a lot of Michael Children figure anime, such as Doremo, right, which is a cute robot cat, um, which can help you being a very helpful companion. So the way in which uh, technical techno intimacy operates through Google Android icon work similarly as how Mecha Child function in anime narratives. Um, so therefore, this figure of Mecha Child is a crucial part of a much broader aesthetic system that evoke this very powerful sense of techno-intimacy. And this, this techno-intimacy is a very prevailing cultural voice of information capitalism because the system wants knowledge workers to feel they're part of this machine this part of the information technological system. So therefore, this intimacy include a knowledge worker into this whole system as their lives and their habit and their very sense of being. Well, on the note of uh, youthfulness and childishness, uh, perhaps it's a good transition to another concept that you um, discuss, which is the concept of cybernetic play. So uh -huh. how would you... Um, conceptualize and explain cybernetic play? And, and are there any interesting examples that you're able to share from mm -hmm. gaming and, and anime? And you know, through those examples, can we sort of understand why play is important to think about uh, in this broader social and cultural context? Yeah, yeah that's a, a good question. It's a very difficult to answer. <laughs> uh, because to understand cybernetic play, we need to first explain what is cybernetics. <laughs> Uh, to put it simply, cybernetics is a scientific theory about information control. It's a central problem is about how a machine or how a technological system broadly 
can improve its performance through information feedback. That is how a machine can learn to perform better by learning from previous feedbacks. Okay, so how a machine can learn from the previous feedback systems, so therefore they can improve their performance in future operations. So the learning through uh, feedback process. Uh, in addition, the theory is also based on analogy between information system of a machine and the neurological system of human. And the key argument is that the way in which human learns is similar as how a machine learns, which is also through an information feedback process in neural system. And this analogy between machine learning and human learning form the basis of a cultural understanding of cybernetics as post-human thesis. And the, in my book, the concept of cybernetic play is based on both this technological understanding and the cultural understanding of cybernetics. And the argument is that the play mechanism in games and also in anime's uh, transmedia system is also a cybernetic process through information feedback. In other words, cybernetic play is a mode of play that rely on informative feedback loops to learn to play better. That is a player or a gamer try to improve his, his or her performance through cycles of trial and error. Now that's how we play games. We try and try, which is a feedback system. And we learn from this feedback and to prove our performance to learn to play better in future gaming. And the key argument in the book is that this mechanism of cybernetic play has become a very important organizational principle to structure, expand, and control anime's transmedia system that is known as media mix in Japan. For example, one way in which cybernetic play organized anime's media mix is operated through uh, a player or an otaku's position search for the so-called true end in the gaming system by consuming and producing many, many proliferating word lines as information feedback with trial and error. I think one example is the stainless gaze as a transmedia franchise. It started the game and developed into multimedia content such as anime manga. And so the story is about time travel. So every time you go one time travel, you create a new word line. So by playing a game, you generate a lot of word lines. And there are many, many of them, countless of them. So there is a proliferating number of word lines. However, among all those word lines, there's only one so-called true ending. And the key of that game is to searching for this true ending that's called a stainless gaze, which is very specific, very difficult to find. In order to find its true end, the stainless gaze, you have to play through all the other word lines to gain all the information, the tricks you learn from the feedback from all this word line in order to improve your performance so you can get to this very specific true ending. And this process demonstrating what is mechanism of cybernetic play. That is by playing all those proliferating word lines, you learn, you're, you're learning from those feedbacks, you improve your playing performance, and therefore you can, you can achieve this goal of achieving this one particular true ending. And I think the importance about this cybernetic play is this juxtaposition, this tension between making this many, many word lines as possible versus finding and designing for this one singular true ending. In other words, 
when we are having so many different stories, so many different time travel world line, why we are still focusing on one particular true ending? Why it is important? I think the cybernetic play is demonstrating there this tension between consuming and producing as many world lines as possible versus looking for this one singular true ending. And this tension between this multiplicity versus singularity, between information proliferation versus this singular control, demonstrating the central problem in our knowledge work culture of Eden, which is to say we have this struggling between, again, the similar struggling as Demarco, the struggling between having as many information as possible versus reaching this singular true end, finding the singular meaning. So there's a tension between this um, polarizing impulse between information expensiveness, that is to get as many information possible versus regulatory uniformity, that is to finding its true ending, its true meaning. And I think this tension, this tension is between multiplicity versus uh, singularity, between as many word lines as possible versus this one singular true ending, characterize not only cybernetic play, but this whole theme of, I call cybernetic fact in this whole book about anime geekdom. That is, as a geeks, anime geek or other kind of geeks, we are facing the similar problem, right? We are trying to struggle in between more and more information versus this singular meeting, singular ending. And this tension, I think, generate uh, demonstrating the key cultural problem of our information society broadly, because the society is organized by the cybernetic system. And the cybernetic system is also structured by the same problem crisis between uncertainty and control. Because the whole information, the whole cybernetic system is about, the system is having too much information, too much uncertainty. So therefore, we are looking for finding a certain kind of pattern or control because of this increasing uncertainty. But because the information are too much, certainty is forever impossible. So the cybernetic is to keep reaching the goal of certainty and control, but never can realize it. So there's a keep tension, keep kind of um, agitation of perpetual, perpetually reaching the goal of control, but never can realizing it. And this tension between this desire for control versus information uncertainty is also caused our problem and crisis as knowledge culture in today's society. And this problem is demonstrated by the cybernetic play in geek culture and anime specifically. To, to move on from gaming to perhaps other you know, notions of, of creation, um, your last chapter delves into the super flat movement uh, by Takashi Murakami, who's a Japanese mm. contemporary artist. Um, for our listeners, uh, could you explain what the movement is and you know, why it might be a useful lens through which to view uh, modern social media and perhaps computing more broadly? So Superfly is art style that was characterized by Takeshi Birakami as some, something that influenced by the anime and the manga. Um, it is a visual system that organized the image field in a distributive and a hierarchical manner. So instead of a singular perspective of a singular vanishing point, we are now facing multiple perspectives with many, many elements are distributed evenly. And this result is 
a visual system that required the viewer to move their eyes across the surface of the image rather than focusing on a one singular vanishing point. As Murakami said, Superfly is about the movement of the eye, movement of the gaze. So it's a sort of a new kind of visual aesthetics require a new kind of vision. Instead of focusing on one singular point of the image, we are now supposed to be scanning, moving our eyes, scanning around the whole surface of the image. And in this book, I argue that Superfly is not only a visual style of anime or of Japanese culture in particular, but rather is a broader, much broader visual aesthetics of digital hypermediacy. Because uh, what it generates by Superfly is not simply a visual field that requires a moving base, but it's rather an information field that demands navigation. So because there are too many visual elements on the visual field, you have to move your eyes and navigating the visual field as if it is information field. That's why I connect Superfly aesthetics with the interface design of our many digital media entities such as Facebook. Um, as aesthetics of network uh, mediation, the meaning of Superfly as information field is very ambivalent. On one hand, this information field is very distributed, which allow user participation into the media production. For example, many otaku and the, and the geek fans produce a lot of their own fan work. And today's a lot of digital users participate in the uh, media production as exemplified by uh, the works on social media networks such as YouTube and Nikoniko and Bilibili. So this distributed information field allow people to come in and participate as media producers. But on the other hand, this distributed information field is also tightly controlled and framed by the techno-economic logic of information capitalism. For example, the algorithm structure of Facebook frame our participatory experience of this media, this particular platform as a consumer within this monetization system. So therefore, the distributive system allow you to come in, but the framing field entrap you within this commodification system of monetization. So therefore, Superflat overall, as a visual aesthetic of digital mediation, even though it mobilized our gaze into this distributed field, however, it ultimately framed the subject within, framing human subject within the um, algorithm structure and the commodity matrix of information capitalism. And this tension or contradiction between the distributiveness versus the framing structure is what we learn from Superflat about the knowledge culture on social media and the computer networks. Well, uh... To end, perhaps on a lighter note, uh, going away from monetization and, and social networks to perhaps yeah. more uh, you know, core and, and pleasurable things, uh, what anime or other media might you recommend our listeners watch if they want to understand Jai culture in China better? Uh, okay, in my opinion, to understand Jai culture, Instead of watching an anime, probably the more helpful way to get into Jai culture is to log into Bilibili. <laughs> because I think probably the most representative media entity get to know Jai culture is Bilibili rather than any particular media contents of the anime or manga. Because, particularly because Bilibili is not 
uh, cultural content. It's not a film or an anime, but instead, it's a digital platform. It's a technological system to represent a specific kind of mediation. And I think the key argument in my book is that the most interesting about Jai culture or anime Gideon or geek culture broadly is that it's not about certain kind of content, anime or manga game but rather about a certain kind of mediation. That's why I argue in the book, anime is not a content, but a media environment. As in the media environments, this particular mediation centered on information searching, navigation consumption. And the Bilibili represent that kind of mode of mediation as a media environment rather than content in Jai culture. So therefore I would recommend you to go to Bilibili rather than watch anime, because for me, anime is about this media environment such as Bilibili rather than a specific content such as Ellen Leon. And I would recommend anyone who's interested in Jai culture to go to bilibili.com. And if you're even interested, you can even log in to sign in to even you know, get a, a user membership or even to pass exam. As I mentioned in the book, you know, at Bilibili, in order to post the demo comments, you have to pass a test. Okay, so for regular user, if you haven't been to Bilibili, you probably know as a regular, just normal user, you can read the demo, you cannot input, you cannot write the comments. In order to write comments, you have to pass exam <laughs> to be a real member. So if anybody really wants to know Chinese Jack culture, I recommend go to Bilibili and try to learn your way through uh, passing the exam, which is really <laughs> difficult. I spent a lot of time trying to get in there and try to get a meaningful membership through this round of exam and tests to get to the membership to know what a knowledge culture means for Chinese Jai culture. And so therefore you can have a sense of not only the range of the scale of Jai culture there, but also get into the depth. What do you want to be a Jai? You need to learn, you need to study, you need to really work hard that it's truly a knowledge work in addition to this knowledge consumption. It's really a working way through Jai culture. In order to be a Jai, you have to work hard. So therefore, I think to experience how Jai is a truly a knowledge culture involves a lot of work and pleasure, I recommend some everyone to go to Billy Billy, not only as a casual viewer, but also try to get your membership by passing the exam and test. If you know Chinese, of course, because most of the exam are in Chinese. But if you don't know Chinese, I think you can still just watch the video. You know, get a sense of how the Danmarku, the comments flying over screen can be overwhelming, can generate what I call the cybernetic effect through this particular media environment. Yeah, and I guess even if you know Chinese, the, the exams are not necessarily it's easy. It's very difficult. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, that's what I argue in the, the, in the chapter of the book, right? It's truly a knowledge culture by learning and studying and the, and the practicing. So that's, I think... I think this kind of exam pretty demonstrates what it means to be Jai in China. It's not really fun, right, by the way. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I, I really love that suggestion. Very immersive uh, suggestion. Yes. Um, well, thank you, yeah. Jinying. This was an enriching conversation. Uh, listeners, if you want to learn more about what we discussed in this episode, look for Jinying Li's book, Anime's Knowledge Cultures. Jinying, thanks again for coming on the New Books Network. And thank you so much for inviting me here. It's such a great pleasure talking with you about the book.